You may be seated. Lord, we ask now that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning. I wonder, as we begin today, how many of you remember a channel that was on TV called Turner Classic Movies? <laughs> a few of you. Good. Okay, this is good. We're off to a good start. Uh, it may still be around, but I remember it from when I was a kid. It was frequently on in our house, and, and as a young boy, I loved Turner Classic Movies, which is a little strange, except that it had a lot to do with my dad. See, here's the deal. My dad, like, like a lot of dads, frequently had to work late. He would frequently come home after I was already in bed. And so here's what I would do. His mom would send me to bed, and I would lay in the bed, and I would wait. Now, maybe some of you have kids. They might do this. You wait, and you wait until you hear dad's keys jingle in the door, and then you would know that dad was home, and you give him a minute. He comes in, says hi to mom, gets settled, and he goes and sits in his comfy chair in the living room, and turns on Turner Classic Movies, and that was the cue. And I would tiptoe down the stairs, and I would go, and I would sit in his lap, and we would watch Turner Classic Movies, and we would laugh and enjoy it until Mom figured out that I was out of bed, and then I would get sent back to the room. <laughs> and we watched a lot, of, a lot of great movies that I still think about fondly, Casablanca, Going My Way, The Bells of St. Mary's. But there was one movie in particular that as a kid I loved, uh, probably because the cast was made up of a lot of young boys. Um, it was called Boys Town. It was the story of a, of a young priest named Father Flanagan. It's actually based on a true story. Uh, Father Flanagan was a, a priest in the inner city that was, um, was struck by the number of young men that, were, uh, that had been abandoned, that were living these sort of delinquent lives that didn't really have any options. And so he began to build a home for them out in the country and a home for boys. And the, the, the main part of the story is really about that trajectory. It's about sort of making the dream realized, about fundraising and the scrapes that they get into, trying to hold the whole thing together. But there's the side plot, has to do with this, this young man. Uh, Mickey Rooney is the co-star. It's a young Mickey Rooney. And what happens with, with this young man is that uh, Father Flanagan gets a summons one day to come to the penitentiary, to come to the prison. There's a person there on death row that wants to speak with him. And when he goes, he's expecting to hear someone's confession, right? There's this, this gangster that has been given the death penalty and he you know, wants last rites or something like that. But when he gets there, um, the, the mobster, the gangster is not interested in confession. He, he's not even interested in religion. He says he doesn't want any of that. What he wants is he has a younger brother. And he says, I want you to go and find my younger brother and I want you to get him out of this business, I want you to get him away from here. Get him away from the city. Get him away from the mob. I want you to get him to a place where he can live a good life, where he'll be safe. Now, what I was struck with as I reflected on that story earlier this week is there's a similarity between that movie, that scene in the movie, and what's going on in our, in our reading. A similarity and yet also a pretty significant difference. You see, if for those of you that are just visiting today, we, we've been on a journey over the last several weeks. We've been going through the letters of Paul to Timothy. And today we're coming to the end of his last letter. The end of his last letter, but also we're coming to the end of Paul's life. This is the last thing that he's written as he's facing his own execution. And you see, Paul's been on trial in Rome. Timothy is, 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 uh, is left in Ephesus. And Paul's sending a messenger to him to help him to make sense of what's going on. And here we have this sort of similarity between the story and the movie and then what's happening in our reading. 
In the movie, we have a, a convicted criminal sitting on death row, sending a message to his younger brother with instructions about how to live his life. And in, in what's happening in our reading, we have Paul convicted of a crime, sitting on death row, sending a message to the son in the faith, this, this young man that he has raised up and taught. And he's sending him a message about how to live his life. But there's a significant difference. The, the mobster is exhorting his brother to leave. He's saying, get out of here, get out of the business, get away, get somewhere safe. Paul is exhorting Timothy to do the exact opposite, to press in, to stay in the business, if you will, to stay even though it will not be safe. At one point, he even says explicitly, Timothy, come join me in the suffering of the gospel. Now, let me ask you, does, does Paul love Timothy any less than in the story, the mobster loves his brother? Is Paul any less motivated to, to give this child whom he loves sound advice, good guidance for the future? No, of course not. But, but what Paul has and what becomes clear as he reflects about his own death is a conviction that this is the only way to grab hold of what is really life. That the appearance of Christ has changed everything. That the only source of light and life is holding fast to Christ. And so Paul is going to try to explain this to Timothy. He's going to use his death as an example. And the context here is he's using his own death as an example for how Timothy ought to look at his own life. And to do that, he's going to draw on these themes. At the very end, like a crescendo in music from a master composer, Paul begins to pull themes from this letter, but also from his other letters, from letters that Timothy would have known because they were addressed to Timothy, from letters Timothy would have known because they were addressed to the church that Timothy is currently ministering at, and letters that Timothy would have known because he co-wrote them with Paul. And Paul begins to pull all these themes together to weave them into this crescendo and Paul uses the resonance of those themes to remind Timothy of his calling. Now, we're going to spend some time today talking about a few of those themes, particularly the ones that happen in that first paragraph in your reading. Paul begins to utilize a series of metaphors, two that function as bookends, one at the beginning and one at the end, that talk about the work that God is doing in the world, the work that Paul sees God doing in his life, and then two in the middle that talk about Paul's own perspective, that talk about a way to understand your own vocation, your own agency in the world. Let's go ahead and dive into that first one now. The first metaphor we come to concerns this idea of a drink offering. Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And Timothy would have remembered this language. It's in the letter that he co-wrote with Paul to the Philippians. But there it was hypothetical. Paul said, if I were to be poured out as a drink offering upon your sacrifice... And here it's not theoretical anymore. It's not hypothetical. It's actual. I am already being poured out. Now, just, just a technical note. You, you would be forgiven if you saw the word drink offering and you thought this is something you drink. That, it sounds like that's what it is, but it's not. A drink offering was an offering of wine that was poured out on top of the sacrifice, pour, poured out completely in the sacrificial rite within the temple. It's part of the commandments given to the Jewish people for how they're to worship God. And there's something here that I want to highlight because I think it provides an important insight we might miss otherwise. You see, of all the commandments given to Israel, some were given to be enacted right away, right? Like the Sabbath, right? As soon as the commandment's given, they're to begin practicing this commandment. But others of the commandments were to wait. 
They were put down for the day when the people would come into the kingdom that God was giving them. Remember, God had made this promise to Abraham. He had said, I'm going to give your people a place to live, a place to rest. But when the law is given, it's right when the people have been taken out of Egypt and they're not in that place yet. And so some of the laws then function as a sort of trust. I'm giving you to, this to you now because you're going to use it later. But they had to wait. One day you'll come into the land and then this is what you'll do. The drink offering was one of those laws. And, you know, we know something about waiting. As, a, as part of the Christian life, we know about waiting. Even in our sort of particular experience, we, we know about waiting. Uh, my wife, Maylin, is she's downstairs right now, but we sometimes joke, we've been in Anglican churches for the better part of 15 years, uh, and we've never been part of a church that had its own building. And so we've, we've met in gymnasiums, we've met in auditoriums, we've met in borrowed churches, we've, uh, we've met here in this beautiful day chapel. Wherever we are, there sometimes can be this sort of expectancy, this not tension, but just sort of hopefulness about, you know, one day we're going to be in a space where all of the liturgy is going to make sense. One, you know, there are pieces maybe that we do right now or maybe pieces we hold off on doing because they just won't make sense in a gymnasium or in an auditorium. I'll give you an example. One time we were at a church um, and the church met in a gymnasium. It was one of those with the sloped floor that goes down. And then we have a sort of raised dais here, but this had a, like a full platform. It was about three feet in the air or three feet above the ground, I should say. And to make matters worse, the deacon, bless her, the, the deacon was very short, um, five feet at a stretch. And so they, they couldn't process the gospel into the midst of the people where the gospel ought to be read. They had to read it up at the front. And I remember as they were getting prepared to, to, um, to purchase a building, this was in the works, and they were talking about, hey, what's, you know, this is going to be great. And one of the things people would talk about is, we're going to be able to process the gospel. Won't it be great when the gospel is able to be read among the people as it's supposed to be? Right? There was this expectancy, this waiting. And that's part of what I think is happening with this idea of the drink offering. The drink offering happens in the temple. It happens in the place where God has established his presence. It happens when the people have come into the kingdom. There's a commentator that says, Only after the Lord had defeated the enemies of his people, after he had given his people a restful dwelling in the land, then he would accept the wine of their offering. In, the con in this context, the commandment of the drink offering is a promise of eventual victory and settlement in the land. So why does Paul pick this part of the temple sacrifice to reference? Why does he say to Timothy, this is what I am? Well, I think part of it is he's forcing Timothy to confront attention. He's, Paul is going to die. And he's drawing Timothy's attention to that. For all the world, it looks like the kingdom of death is going to win. But what Paul is writing to Timothy, he's anxious that his beloved child not buy into the lie. And he reminds him, Christ has already won. Christ has already put an end to the powers of the world. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is seated on the throne in heaven. And now the presence of God, just as it was in the temple, is spreading through the world like fire like the fire that the people saw on the mountain when the law was given, like the fire that rested over the tabernacle, like the fire that rested in the temple and caused the smoke that billowed forth, like the fire on the day of Pentecost that came down upon the disciples of Christ. 
The presence of God now is with his people. And wherever his people go, that is the kingdom of God. The presence of Christ is already present there. Paul, approaching his execution, understands that his life is being lived out on a different stage. That he is in the presence of God before his death. That he will be in the presence of God after his death. That he's not, here's the point, he's not dying in exile. That he's dying, as John Calvin puts it, on the very theater of God. In the presence of God. And it's in this theater that Paul makes sense of the whole course of his life. He pleads, Timothy, my son, live your life as within the theater of God. And then he gives Timothy two metaphors, two commandments, if you will. One external and one internal on how to live his life. They're framed as descriptions of Paul's own life, but the context is clear. It's like in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, follow me as I follow Christ. So the first of these two, he says, I have fought the good fight. Paul is reminding Timothy and through him, the church of Ephesus, of something that he said before, something that he said to the Ephesians before, we are in a battle. And I say this metaphor is external because in a battle, there's an enemy as opposed to a race, right? In a battle, you have an opponent. And let me just remind you of what Paul has written in his letter to this very church, this church in Ephesus. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is reminding Timothy of where he is, that he's on a battlefield. But here's the thing. Spiritual warfare is is one of those things that's one of these uncomfortable truths in Christianity. It's not, it's one of those things we're tempted to be embarrassed about. It's not polite for civilized society. It's not a thing that you sort of bring up. It's not at times credible. I may have told you this before. I was involved in a research project once looking at sort of the, the religious beliefs of youth around the country and particularly youth that were raised in religious homes. And so we went and, you know, they, they went and they asked them, they said, hey, what, you know, what do you believe about this and about that and the other? And, you know, if you ask the youth, do you believe in God? These youth, you know, they were, again, raised in religious homes. Absolutely. Yes, of course. Do you believe in miracles? Yes, of course. Afterlife. Yes. Angels. Yes. Demons. Ah, not so much. It was the, the, uh, the sort of statistic flipped. It was fascinating. All of these other ones people believed in. But when you got to demons, that maybe not. I was trying to make sense of this. I went and I was talking with Deacon Tex. You know, uh, Deacon Tex has, has been in ministry for a long time in lots of different parts of North America. So what do, you, what do you make of this? What's going on here with these teenagers? And what he said, I thought was profound. He, he, said, um, he said, you know, believing in angels doesn't really cost anything of you. It doesn't really demand anything of you. Believing in miracles doesn't really demand anything of you. Even in a way, believing in God, if you don't think about it too much, doesn't really demand anything of you. But believing in demons, now that's different. Because you believe in demons, now you're believing that there is an enemy who has a purpose contrary to yours, and you have to figure out how you're responding to that. That is a sort of different ballgame. And, you know, we, we could tell stories. We have people in this room that have been all over the world. We, you know, seen strange things. We have people here that have stayed in Athens and have seen some strange things. But, At the end of the day, you're going to have to decide. 
Scripture says that we are at war. Scripture says that there is an enemy bent on your destruction. As the Lord says to Cain after he's murdered his brother, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to master you. Paul's command to Timothy is to stay awake to that, to stay engaged in the fight, not to be lulled to sleep by the pursuit of worldly accomplishments or pleasures, but to fight the good fight. And by the way, I want to I point something out here as a, as a word of comfort, because sometimes we can feel pretty beaten down in this fight, right? Sometimes you feel like, yeah, I'm on the field and I'm just getting kicked this way and that all over the place. I'm not making any progress in this fight against sin or death or the devil. And, I, and if, if you're in that place, I want to encourage you to pay attention to exactly what Paul says here. He doesn't say that he's won the fight. He just says that he fought it. Now, what, what's going on? Well, what's going on is Christ, Christ wins the fight. Christ has already won the fight. Everything else that happens in life is just the playing out of the battle. Paul is saying, keep your focus. He's saying to Timothy, keep your focus as a soldier on pleasing the one who enlisted you. That's, he uses that phrase earlier in the letter. He's saying, keep your eyes upon Christ. That's where the victory is. Don't listen to anything else the devil might tell you. Your purpose is to fight in the fight. Christ has already won. So Paul says that he's fought the good fight, and then he makes use of another metaphor, another theme that you can trace through his letters. He says, I have finished the race. And if fighting is external, running is internal, right? One of them has to do with fighting an enemy. The other has to do with perseverance, with holding fast in the midst of exhaustion, I don't, I don't know about you, but whenever I've run in the race, there's this moment at the beginning where it's fun and I'm, ru- I'm running fast and I'm thinking about personal records and I'm thinking about how many people I'm passing. And then there comes a point at some point in the race where it's not fun anymore. I'm not counting the people that are passing me now. I'm just trying to get to the end of the thing. There's something here about the spiritual life. Paul told the Ephesians the last time that he saw them, he said, I don't count my life as of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord. Sometimes I'll talk with people who will say, my, my spiritual life is just dead right now. I just don't, I don't feel anything. You know, what you say to that is, that's okay. That's normal. That's your spiritual life doesn't depend on you feeling anything. Doesn't depend on your feeling this rush of energy or this excitement or this progress. What matters is that you keep the faith. What matters is that you stay the course. Paul is inviting Timothy to remember something they wrote together in the letter to the Philippians. Paul wrote there, not that I claim to have reached perfection already, but I forget all that lies behind me and with hands outstretched to whatever lies ahead, I go straight for the goal. Timothy, Paul is saying, keep on running, stay the course and you will reach the end. And then as Paul begins to discuss, discuss receiving the victor's crown, at first it starts out as this athletic metaphor, this sort of this crown of laurels that you would get for competing in the games But then it shifts. The theme begins to shift a fourth and final time. No longer are we in the temple. No longer are we on the battlefield. No longer are we at the races. Now we're in the throne room. 
And this for Paul ultimately is where everything has been heading all along. The appearing of Christ, the righteous judge, seated at the throne, declaring the victory of his people, declaring the victor of all who love, all who have longed for his appearing. And there's something in that, this idea of appearing, of the idea of epiphany. That's actually the word that Paul uses, is the epiphany of Christ. This appearing of Christ, this revelation, this visibility of what was previously unseeable. Christ on the throne, Christ at the center. I wonder if you've ever had an epiphany, a a moment where all of a sudden all the pieces fell into place. Sometimes by the word epiphany, we mean something kind of flimsy. We mean a sort of, you get an insight, it gets you through a day, but then it sort of goes away, right? But, But sometimes... Sometimes the epiphany is exactly what you need to begin repairing a relationship, to begin working your way out of a problem. The epiphany is exactly what you need because it reveals to you something about the way that the world really is. All of a sudden, what you see more clearly is reality. So like I said, epiphany is the word that Paul is using here. The epiphany, the reality that's appeared is this realization that Christ is on the throne, that Christ is at the center of everything. And he's saying to Timothy, hold on to that. Don't lose sight of that. Because at the end of the day, all of this stuff, even the hard stuff, is just the world trying to make sense of itself without that, without recognizing that Christ is at the the center. It's like if you've ever tried to walk through a room in the dark, I don't know if anybody else has ever done this, but you sort of go through the room in the dark and then someone flips on the light and you realize that you had thought you were over here, but actually you're up here. You're not at all where you thought you were. That's, That's how the appearance of Christ works. It's what Paul is saying, what Paul is talking about here is that the appearance of Christ changes the whole field. It makes you realize that you aren't in the place you thought you were. You you think that I'm facing death and you think that this is the end and that this is a failure of ministry. And what I'm saying is that no, Christ has won. And because Christ has won, this isn't the end of the ministry. This whole letter has been preparing Timothy for his death, preparing Timothy to take on his mantle, to continue the work of the gospel, even in the midst of suffering. And Paul is warning him, don't get lost in the dark. Remember the light of Christ. Remember the work that Christ has done, that Christ continues to do in you. Let that plot the course of your life. Map out your journey according to that reality. And what's interesting is at the end of this section, Paul tips his hand a little and he, and he lets the rest of us in. He sort of reveals that he's not just writing to Timothy, but that he's writing to a wider audience. Given that he's about to die, it's likely that Paul understood that already, that he understood that he was writing also to a future audience. In fact, the the last line of the letter, it's not in, in the reading in your bulletin, but the last line of the letter, he says, grace be with you. And the you there is plural. He's not just talking to Timothy. He's talking to us. He's talking to the people that would receive this letter even after he's been executed. Paul is giving us all a framework for understanding our lives in light of the kingdom. These themes which Paul has been pulling together are not just for Timothy, but for all of us. Paul is calling us to understand our lives as taking place completely within the kingdom of God, within his presence, to offer ourselves wholeheartedly to the work of the gospel, to live our lives as soldiers on a battlefield which Christ has already won, to persevere in the faith even when we're exhausted. 
and to keep ever before us the reality of Christ, the righteous judge. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.